Hi, before we start, just a very brief word. Uh, firstly, just an apology because I've been aiming to keep to the schedule of the 22nd, 23rd of each month, but I caught COVID last month and it's messed with me. Um, I have university work, I have paid work, I have family life, and I've been exhausted and unable to do very much of anything. So I do aim to keep the regular monthly schedule. Um, I have lots of episodes ready to go and all queued up. And hopefully from now on in, you should expect that regular schedule. But um, just for now, life got in the way. Before we begin, I want you to understand just how seriously I take my responsibility. The mere act of asking a question is the first step on the path to damnation. Heresy. The Imperium of Man was not built by those who questioned. It was built on the iron will of the Emperor, in the Orthodox, and above all, obedience. In our Imperium, we have a single institution that is pure enough to ask questions, and the Ordos of the Inquisition will now put you to the question. Welcome to 40 Curious, the podcast where each episode, with the help of a guest, we delve deep into 40k. And I'd like to welcome today RJ Bailey. Now, Rob is actually the first voice you'll have ever heard on the podcast. He does the wonderful voice acting at the beginning before the intro. And I mean, just from my point of view, writing a little bit of fiction and then having a professional voice actor read it out and bring life to it in a way that I would never have imagined was just a spine tingling moment and i'm not exaggerating there so thank you so much for that rob well i'm deeply honored to have that effect and to be honest with you it was such a good piece of writing it was an honor for me to do it i actually was no detriment to yourself i was actually surprised how good it was <laughs> and how authentic it was to other 40k writing by the people who do it for black library uh i was like Black Library should hire this person. I could write a couple of paragraphs for them, but I'm not sure that I've got the longevity for a whole career of those <laughs> stuff. I mean, these books are packed full of all that stuff. Well, if you can write a paragraph and then another and then another and then another, just you've got a novel. Well, you say that. I have actually written a novel <laughs> and I can tell you that it was uh, not published. And I worked in publishing and of looking at these things is the best 1% of everything that is written is published. And mm -hmm. once you've written yourself, once you've seen all the very successful, very competent, very good people who write a novel, and it's really not very good, and that's no detriment on them. It's just like yeah. the skills to write a paragraph by paragraph line is one thing, and then you've yeah. got the crafting of the whole story, which is an entirely different thing. And you see novelists who are at one end or the other, and mm -hmm. so much as people mock like the Da Vinci Code guy, for his writings yeah. paragraph by paragraph. And, you know, that's a fair comment, to be honest. It's really, some really bad, like, technical writing. Yeah, yeah. But the guy knows how to grip people and get them coming back. And that's a skill which I think a lot of literary novelists could learn from. Yeah. Anyway, we're already going off on a tangent, which <laughs> is great. But 
Not a problem. So Rob is a podcast host. He's much more professional than I am of Metal oh. Empire. And he's a voice actor and he is an audiobook narrator as well. And so just as a plug for him there, I've listened to his Men of Ash and Shadows by H.L. Tinsley. And it's absolutely brilliant. And if you're into Warhammer stuff, the grim dark, that kind of like grimy city, Mordheim kind of feel, then this is well and truly one for you. So really, if you've got an audible credit, go and buy that. Hey, I'll tell you what, that's a lovely plug. Thank you. If you want, I can give some copies away with audible codes to listeners of this show, I've just thought. Uh, I have free codes. So if anyone wants one, do something that services yourself and, and I could give them away to listeners. Let's say I've got five to give away in the UK and US territories. Oh, wow. That'd be amazing. I mean, so contact uh, Rob or myself. There'll be the details of how to do that at the end of the show. And just put 40 Curious as the tagline to show that you've listened at least you know, four minutes into the show. <laughs> if you've downloaded it, that's fine for the algorithm. So, you know, that, that'll do for me. <laughs> and the other thing for this show particularly is the podcast Old X. Now, in that, Rob, do you want to tell us what you do for the Old X podcast? Yeah, basically all it is, it's a portmanteau of old and codex, essentially. I am narrating the old micro and short fiction, short stories that were in the old codexes that I grew up with. So as a massive Necron fanboy, I started with third edition codex Necrons and I've done all that. And it's on a little break right now, purely enforced by my paid workload of voice acting. Um, but I'm currently doing the Imperial Guard 3rd Edition Codex as well. Think of it as an audiobook, but all of the stories are a few minutes long, maybe 15 minutes long at the max. Uh, it's free, it's all professionally produced, so it sounds very nice. So yeah, that's what Old X is. It's just bringing to life the old fiction that inspired me as a child and that I grew up with, and that you're unlikely to ever hear in audio format. And so that's a big plug for this episode, because we're going to be discussing Necrons, and specifically how Necrons intersect with, with horror tropes. Um, mm -hmm. And there's some very obvious ones from the way they're portrayed, and we'll cover all of those. And then how the faction has developed and matured and changed a little bit, and how the Games Workshop writers still keep drawing from that horror well. And this has been one of my favourite episodes to work on because I knew really very little surface detail about Necrons before. I hadn't read any of, the, any of the novels or anything like that. And doing the research and speaking to Rob and preparing for this has just really opened my eyes to just how interesting and cool and tragic the whole faction is. So it's, it's been a real personal favourite for me. So yeah, Rob. Do you want to um, lead us away with uh, a little bit of talk about why Necrons for you? What is it about them which really appeals to you? Well, first of all, I was playing Warhammer 3rd Edition when I was young, about 2000, 2001, collecting salamanders because Codex Armageddon had just come out. And I was the stereotypical person that got back into 40k with 8th Edition. I was that archetype who had lapsed for many years and got back into it with the big relaunch and i originally picked necrons because i thought they looked cool but they were going to be a starter army for me and they looked easy to paint because this was before the zarakan dynasty came out which is a bit more complex and they had relatively small amount of units 
which was good for me, who's a horrible, obsessive collector who feels they need to acquire everything. So I was like, yeah, I could reasonably have one of everything. And also they were fairly simple to play. And all of that has got flipped on its head in ninth edition. Uh, But the more I read about them, the more I fell in love with them before, you know, even beyond their aesthetic. There was a big change in fifth edition where they stopped being without character and they got a lot of character and they had some really zany characters. And I actually discovered they've got the most named characters of any faction, unless you're counting space marines as one big faction. You know, I'm kind of referring to Blood Angels and uh, Ultramarines as separate factions here. But they've got, I don't know about any more, but they did when I was starting it have the most named characters. And that gave me a lot of personalities to kind of latch on to. And the more I read about them, the more just fascinating and underrated I thought they were. I loved how they were insane. So they weren't just space robots. They weren't just killer space robots, but they were insane killer space robots. And as someone who loves (laughs) pulp sci-fi and hard genre kind of stuff, that hugely appealed to me. I loved how completely crazy the weaponry was. Like isolated black holes in a pocket dimension stored inside a gun so it could be fired at someone. You know, this isn't Balter shells. This isn't lasgun fire. This is like harnessing the primal aspects of the universe and weaponizing them in the most ridiculous ways. Yeah, which is very, very 40k. Um, Extremely 40k. And likewise with Harlequins, one of the things I love is they're not just Mm going to get a blade and and, and stab you with it or eviscerate you. They're going to get something which phases in and out of reality so that they can reach into your chest, pluck out your heart, and then (laughs) hold it in front of you. Or they've got the monomolecular wire, which... You oh. plugs into you and then just reduces you to soup. Um, I mean, all these yeah. kind of these stupid, dumb, brilliant, fun, over-the-top ways of killing people is is absolutely 40k. Exactly. But the more I read about their story, I'm a sucker for like a tragic hero. And everyone in 40k, in a way, is the hero because everyone's the villain. But they're the hero from their own point of view. And when you play them... You kind of play them from their point of view, or at least I do. Um, You know, I get into the role. Well, this is something that I think that we're going to talk about how it develops. So I think we'll come back to this for sure. Yeah. And I suppose I was quite unwell at the time, quite ill. You know, I have a couple of disabilities myself. They're unseat, you know, invisible disabilities, but still. And essentially, as I read about the war in heaven, I kind of related to a very sick race, and I wasn't getting much help at the moment. Um, doors were being slammed in my face. I very much saw this incredibly sick race that was asking for help from a very powerful entity and being told, no, just because it's ours. And then they got furious with them and went, well, I'm really sorry, but we are kind of dying here. So we're going to have to take that technology one way or another. And I was very angry and at the time and uh, with how I'd been treated. And so I saw myself reflected in the Necrons. Um, sure. So I developed a very deep personal connection with the race of uh, insane killer robots from outer space. <laughs> and when you got into them, did you find that that empathy for them helped you in your recovery from the anger and, and helped you sort of process some of that? Yes, absolutely. Because I don't want to make the Necrons sound like heroes, <laughs> even though I've just you know likened them to that in their own way, but obviously with massive caveats. But 
I do find something very relatable and something very powerful about the fact that they went to war for the sake of their health. And in a way, I wished I could be that effective in seeking out my cures to my own particular ailments. Yeah, and there's something very powerful in all fiction, in all film, that the, the person who suddenly stands up and goes, enough. Yeah. No more. I don't care if you're going to crush me, but I am not taking this. And that's precisely very cool yeah. as a story method. And mm-hmm. it can be something which can inspire you. I mean, it, it's... It really did. I, I know it's kind of, it's weird to talk about the stupidity of 40K as, as a therapeutic thing, but I, I, I do think it, it occurs. And we use these, our hobbies and, and our lives and our stories in general to that end. Totally. I've drawn way more inspiration from, for example, I'm a huge Batman fan. I think a big core of that is that he went through horrific trauma and then he turned it into a force for good. We saw his parents murdered in front of his eyes and he's used the emotions to do something good. So Warhammer 40,000, Batman comic books, crazy science fantasy, I think can be hugely therapeutic. And not just that, but the physical act of painting miniatures, putting them together, you know, expressing yourself through the artistic aspect of the hobby. Again, it's extremely therapeutic. So you combine that with a story I relate to with just an extremely therapeutic activity. It really did help me get through a lot of my anger, a lot of my depression, and it still helps me get through a lot of my depression, you know? Sure. Honestly, it gives me goosebumps as well that after they got betrayed, they went to war with their own gods. Is there anything more epic than that? Is there anything more empowering for these guys who I kind of see myself in to then go to war with their own duplicitous gods? My God, if that's not metal, I don't know what is. It's incredibly metal. And again, relating this to Harlequins, who are very close to my heart, is mm-hmm. the thing about the El- the other Eldar factions is that they're hiding. They're in some way they're trying to protect themselves. It's a de- but it's yeah. it's a defensive thing. And the Harlequins are there, and they put on their spandex one piece, and they stand there without any armor, and they go, Slanesh, come and get it. And yeah. again, that's Gandalf against the Balrog on the bridge stuff. It, it's standing against the gods and putting two fingers up to them. And that's that's wonderful, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, I think Going to Watch Up have nailed it there as well. Yeah. Anyway, we are getting, again, that's our second major off-track moment. It's all great, but I think we should probably get into the meat sure. of it. So I think if we talk about how they began as, as a faction and how they were yeah. portrayed, and I think Terminator is a very strong touchstone for a lot of it in that, you know, it's the silver robots from the future and they come and you shoot them and they go down and then they get back up again and they keep on coming. Mm-hmm. And it's that relentless horror movie thing, you know, from Terminator, the quote I always remember is listen and understand. The Terminator's out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely yeah. will not stop ever until you are dead. And I think early Necron lore is very much tied around that. Absolutely. It was even, if you look at Necron warriors, the original metal ones, they looked very much like Terminators with a bit of Egyptian stuff around their neck. But they had not the elongated faces we associate with them now, but proper skull faces, you know, with teeth and stuff. 
And also, their rule before it was reanimation protocols was called we'll be back um, <laughs> for when they yeah. stood back up again. So it's very clear where the influences lie, as you say. Yeah, but with the sci-fi horror trope, even in those early periods, after that initial, here's the Terminator in 40k, play with it. How did they bring in other classic sci-fi horror tropes? What kind of things did you identify as, as them drawing on? So something that really struck me reading through the third edition codex, which was their appearance, was how Lovecraftian a lot of it was as well. And I think I think that is science fiction horror. You know, when we think sci-fi horror, we perhaps think alien, we perhaps think event horizon, but that's like the unknowable existential science fiction horror, the horror that drives you mad. Um, there's lore within the original uh, Necrons Codex and in following codexes and other places where their lore appears, where they do have technology in which if a human mind were to behold it, it would just send them completely insane and send them on killing sprees or they would just die. So they were also controlled by gods at that point. This is pre the retcon. Uh, where they were all completely soulless Terminators that just followed their programming and were controlled by the Catan, they're called, or if you want to uh, say it with a French uh, flair, the Satan. One of them, the Deceiver, is pretty much meant to be Satan. He's gold with a red hue, uh, he's got horns on his head, and he made a deal with them in which he tricked them out of their mortal bodies and tried to steal all their souls. Uh, <laughs> yes. But yeah, they were controlled by their gods, the Satan or the Catan, uh, the Nightbringer being one of them. And these were beings much like the Lovecraftian elder gods who were completely unfathomable and you could not understand them. The human mind wasn't equipped to be able to understand their motivations or the plans they put in place. They obviously were doing things, they obviously had plans, there was obviously meaning behind it in the original Necron lore, but much like Lovecraft, you couldn't possibly hope to understand what it was. You just saw that there were patterns, and you saw that there were objectives being sought, but you would never understand what the objectives were. They were extremely mysterious, appearing out of nowhere, and then disappearing, when they might even seem to have been winning a battle. So there is a big Lovecraftian element to it as well. Sure. When you were talking about the Nightbringers, of course, isn't one of them called the, the Lightbringer as well? Um, there might well be. I'm not sure. There's quite a lot of Satan or Catan out there. Okay. Um, so there, there could well be. I've not heard of that one myself. I'm willing to believe there is. There were gods like, you know, Landagore with a lot of apostrophes in their name and the Deceiver has his own name that isn't the Deceiver, as does the Nightbringer, and those are very Lovecraftian names in themselves. They are kind of those unpronounceable things, yeah. uh, just like uh, Lovecraft's Hlalu, uh, which is apparently the closest way human uh, can say Cthulhu. Oh, to okay. pronounce it correctly, it would be Hlalu. <laughs> right, okay. And it's similar with the... I had to research that for something. And it's similar with the uh, Necron Catans as well. You know, there's Hlandugor, who is the uh, flayed one. Oh, okay. Is that the first mention of the flayed ones then, in that, in the, as, as the god? Uh, yes. So the flayed ones came about because Hlandugor was the only Catan 
that we know of that was fully destroyed. He wasn't shattered into shards. Okay, so this is later law. Uh, this is pre them killing their own gods. Yeah. But the current law is Klandugor was the only god who was ever actually fully destroyed and completely obliterated rather than split into shards like the others. His parting gift was a curse upon the Necrons. The flayed ones would develop a hunger for flesh and want to clothe themselves in flesh, much like Klandugor, the flayed one god. Right, yeah. But earlier, the Necron, things like uh, flayed ones were just the more insane robots. Yeah, I was noticing in your, going back and listening to the old axes, even yeah. in some of that third edition, there's an Imperial Guard convoy getting getting ambushed and then yep. yeah, the, the the lead character of that turning around and finding this kind of you know hunched flesh shrouded insane yep. killer monster behind him wearing the skin of his friend exactly and in those old x so big plug here for old x folks please go and listen to it it's great but you go back and you, and you listen to all of those they are all from exterior perspectives yeah so in these, all imperial. Yeah. Well, there was one Eldar one, I think. Um, True. There is there dark, one about, dark shadows. Yeah. There's a couple of Eldar ones. I um, apologise. And that sort of goes back into the war in heaven type long rivalry thing. But, but it's all from this exterior point of view, and so that goes back to that. Yes, they they have motivations, and they're mysterious. What they are, their their main function is to be the antagonist. Um, in, mm-hmm. Even in their own codex, so even in that third edition codex, they are still this kind of external, as you say, Lovecraftian force. But there's other horror tropes and stuff which we covered before, and um, you particularly mentioned the UFO kind of hokey um, yeah. 1950s horror elements, which I hadn't really been aware of before. So do you want to elaborate on those? Yeah. So something I really liked as well uh, when I was getting into them was realising that they injected some fun and, as you say, hokiness into it. I-, I just want to make a quick note as well. I think this is an interesting comparisons of how Necron lore has changed. With the Wraiths, for example, the Wraiths used to be very different. And this is going back to 3rd edition Codex. The Wraiths in that, they weren't canoptic constructs. Sorry, could you just quickly define canoptic? Apologies. Necrons have robots, highly advanced robots, that usually take on an insectoid shape called canoptic units. You get scarabs, which are little beetles. Uh, You get wraiths, which look like giant cobras. You get stalkers and spiders, things that look like arthropods, basically. You get the seraptic construct, which looks like an enormous beetle, almost like a stag beetle thing. So yeah, they have all of these... And these robots generally carry out maintenance on the tombs. They have defensive capabilities as well to defend the tombs, but they're not designed specifically for combat. Wraiths being one of those, they look like snakes, big giant killer snakes with some legs on the side. In the old lore, they didn't have canoptic units, and wraiths were actually, people might remember them, they look like what Ophidian destroyers are now, which is a throwback to the old wraiths, which were just Necron torsos with giant shoulder guard plates on them and hands on arms ending in like lots of tools and knives and stuff. And these were the Necrons who were serial killers. That's the the law. It's kind of crazy. Necrons who were serial killers came out of the bio furnaces as wraiths. So it really <laughs> right. like lends into that horror aspect. 
in a way like they were portrayed as ghosts as well. But I apologize, I got off uh, topic there. We were talking about the 50s sci-fi aspect. Sure. Um, yeah, so when I was getting into them, there was lots of really fun injections of that kind of hokey sci-fi aspect. And one of the things you'll come across is, in the early codexes especially, is the ancient astronauts theory, which is a real conspiracy theory in which gods were actually aliens in real life. So the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks worshipped aliens who came to Earth. It's often centred around the ancient Egyptians mostly, due to the fact that for a while we couldn't figure out how they'd managed to build the pyramids of Giza. And also all the pyramids of Giza are magnetically aligned north to like only one degree of error, but they're all pointing pretty much exactly magnetically north and we don't know how they did it. So there was a theory in which aliens came down. It was most famously explored in the uh, book Chariots of the Gods. Now, they leaned into this with the Necrons because they were making tomb kings in space to some degree at the time and they thought they need to have pyramids. So they hooked onto this and they said, well, it's the Necrons who were the gods who came down, these tall, giant, gleaming beings and built the pyramids. And from there on through the law, I believe that was the genesis of the hokiness. And there throughout the law as it's developed, they've woven in this aspect of classic horror sci-fi as well. For example, the Night Scythe, which is basically a disc with, you know, a chunk cut out of the middle. So the Night Scythe is the Necron's flyer. Uh, sometimes yes. people call it the croissant, right? It, exactly, the croissant. It does look like a croissant, but if you filled in the hole, it would look like a flying yeah, saucer. Viewing from the side, then it would be yep. that, that classic disc shape. Yeah. Uh-huh. With a little hump in the uh, centre, like a 1950s flying saucer. Mm. And they have the death rays, which they parodied in Mars Attacks. I mean, like, the, yeah. the, the Gauss flayers are literally that, aren't they? They take all the flesh off your body until you're just a skeleton, and then they take that too. They do that very effectively on the intro to Ninth Edition with the yeah. colour piece, with the poor Imperial Guard taking you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're proper disintegrator rays. And like you mentioned there, they have, you know, they have weapons like the death ray, which is literally called the death ray. You know, they have the heat rays, which are obviously most famously used in H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. And The War of the Worlds has walkers coming down to Earth and wielding heat rays, and that's what the Triarch Stalker is. It's a multi-limbed walker wielding a heat ray. <laughs> of course. Oh, and incidentally, another R.J. Bailey production. He's uh, read The War of the Worlds out on podcasts, so you can access that as well. So, you know, kind of just a plug <laughs> again. Plug it all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As well as being what we think of as hokey sci-fi, those mm. are, of their time, they are horrific. Because in the War of the Worlds, at the time, Victorian Britain was you know, the apex world power. It was America mm. in the 90s. It was that, it was unchallenged, really, yep. as a global superpower. And when they came down, they came down into this ultra-modern country, and the armed forces just didn't have a prayer and mm -hmm. so it was it was it was a horrific existential threat and yeah. at the time people would have had that reaction i think because of our more modern sensibilities we, we look on it back and we look at the special effects and the way it's portrayed and perhaps the horror doesn't come through but you know and in the 50s a lot of that horror with the um, the aliens visiting was about you know, delving into nuclear technology and what sure. you awakened in the world 
Many would say that the most famous film of the War of the Worlds is a 1950s film. Uh, it's transposed to America uh, and the uh, walkers aren't walking, they're kind of floating. But again, like it does play into that. So there is a link there as well between classic 50s sci-fi and the Victorian era War of the Worlds. And also there's the giant insects as well. You mentioned that before. So yeah, let's go into that. In the 1950s horror films, there was a lot of worry about nuclear holocaust, nuclear war. The Cold War was um, heating up. Well, it sounds so strange now, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's horrifying. Yes. Um, speaking of Metal Empire, I um, I just interviewed the guitarist of Sabaton, who do military history-themed heavy metal, and their latest album is called The War to End All Wars. And I thought, yeah, could well be that soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's about World War One. but I just thought that is more grimly ironic than it's ever been. Yep. But yes, there was all this worry about nuclear weapons and the effects the radiation would have on civilization, not just human, but all of the uh, fauna and flora around us. And so there were lots of films about things like giant ants coming over with the horizon to destroy us all. There were other more famous films like Godzilla's The Most Famous example of a film that is terrified about nuclear radiation i suppose but in in america especially they did films about giant insects often about giant ants and so you've got that element of it as well the canoptic units being generally giant insects robotic yes but they were giant insects so that plays into the classic horror tropes as well mm. and until you'd mentioned that i hadn't quite realized that the, the separate heritages of mm. these things because i'd sort of been presented with necrons here's the faction and so i go oh yeah yep. it's fine because of the metallic paint jobs and the the fact that there's sort of skulls and things there the the way it's constructed they're all of a piece to an extent but actually yep. the tomb element and the large walker element are not necessarily harmonious in the past but they've taken these different heritages and, and indiscriminately no not indiscriminately what i'm saying is discriminately they have yeah. brought, brought those in yeah and that's it's a really good insight into how they're reaching for the horror has sort of created this modern view of the necrons i mean a lot of the fiction is is also parking back to victorian horror with the you know like the mummy yeah where you have humans or in the old novels it's generally english adventurers and archaeologists yeah. sort of going and awakening something in the tombs curse of the pharaoh type yeah stuff. exactly uh, and there's even a stratagem called curse of the pharaoh is there <laughs> it's one of the stratagems that says you can auto explode a vehicle when it dies and that's the curse of the pharaoh ah oh, lovely so they're still keeping those little little things alive yeah, there's even a stratagem called Revenge of the Doomstalker, which is so obviously just the name of a 1950s sci-fi horror <laughs> film, isn't it? It is, it is. I'd quite like you to make that, actually. <laughs> and so we've got these, all of these kind of various horror tropes, but in a sense, they're all of a piece in mm. that they are all, the humans are having something done to them. Yes, they may have woken them up. Yes, they may have provoked it. But the humans are the protagonists of those stories. And this came up in the Eldar morality episode as well, is that the Eldar kind of have that fairy. So, so when 
one of the things with dealing with Eldar is they can't be trusted. And that goes back to depictions of the Fae and fairies, that if you make a deal with, with them, you've got to be very careful. If you go to their place, you can't eat their food and all that sort of stuff. And they're inherently untrustworthy. And it's how they've... That's fine. If you're writing a book where the humans are the protagonists and they're not meant to know, they're meant to overcome. That's one thing. But going back to what you were talking about before, about everyone's the hero of their own codex, mm. then this is where actually I, th- I think the meat of the episode is is how they created the faction to be their own uh, their own protagonists but still keeping it horror um and so that's i think probably what i'd like to go into next because i think that's what that's what gives it legs mm. and so you you mentioned a little bit about how i think it was the fifth edition where the necrons yes. be- sort of had this big retcon matt ward and I know that some people are still slightly dubious about whether they like that or not. And yeah, that's fine. You can still play them as uh, and, and think of them as faceless killer robots. That's not a problem. Yeah, there is actually a, a, a sub-faction within the Necrons called the Severed, the Empire of the Severed, which are still mindless robots. They are basically still third edition robots in terms of lore. They have their own little empire. So... You can still play the, that, and they're still consistent. That's the uh, with they still fit in with modern law. They haven't been rebooted that part of it. So you can still play the the mindless robots. They're part of the Empire of the Severed now. Well, and the Destroyer Cult yeah. as well. There's more to them than that. But the Destroyer Cult, they have this utter hatred of biological mm. life. And if you put them down on the planet, and then they will work their way through the higher life forms. And then they will work their way through the lower life forms, and then they'll destroy the water type. Yeah. You know, is that they they will will take a lot longer than Tyranids to do it, but they will strip a planet down to its bedrock. So yeah, it's still that's still very much available to you if that's if that's what you're into. Give us a a two minute guide to modern Necron law. Then modern Necron law is quite similar and based heavily on third edition law. It just branches off into a separate timeline after a while. What happened with the war in heaven, as it was called, to the people who were denying the Necrons their health technology, their health care, were called the Old Ones, who were many think of as the Slan from both uh, Warhammer Fantasy as well. And they were fighting a long drawn out war with the Old Ones. Unfortunately, they weren't doing very well until old enemies of the Old Ones, the Catan, made contact with the Necrons. The Necrons had previously worshipped these guys as gods. Uh, they were their gods. They orbited the planet, doing manipulating it in certain ways. Uh, and the Catan came to the Necrons and the Silent King himself, the leader of all the Necrons, and said, we'll help you fight this battle against the Old Ones. And do you know what? We'll give you immortal bodies as well while we do it. And the Silent King, it was the Deceiver, funnily enough, the Devil One. And the Silent King went, that sounds great. That's fantastic. Lovely. So they allied with the Catan. The Catan then set up these bio-furnaces or instructed the Necrons how to build the bio-furnaces. They all marched into these enormous bio-furnaces. And once they came out of the other side, they were transformed from their cancerous, withered, crumbling bodies into gleaming, metal, rock-hard, never dying constructs 
But the problem was they'd lost their soul in the process because the Catan find souls very, very tasty. So what the Necrons did is realizing they had been betrayed, they defeated the old ones. And then once that had happened, at a point where all of the factions were particularly weakened by this war, they then turned on the Catan. They couldn't destroy the Catan. They shattered them into many, many shards, many little pieces. So the Necrons took power off the Catan. They enslaved the shards of them, which were little tiny versions of the Catan, bits of God, which were little reproductions of the main God they came from. And they enslaved them as war beasts and energy sources. They made them at the lowest possible uh, social strata. They are below canoptic units. There is an, a diagram in you know the latest Necrons Codex that shows all the hierarchy, and below they're like little scarab insects that t- tune up the machinery. There are the gods. So now. They went to sleep because the Eldar were created to destroy them. The Orcs were created to destroy them. Several other races. They knew they couldn't win this war after fighting the Catan, so they went to sleep and went for everyone else to die out, essentially. Unfortunately, over the years, the millennia, 60 million years to be precise, their tomb complexes started failing. The war with other races damaged them. And when it was time to wake up, they didn't all wake up at the same time as they were supposed to because everything had been broken and been ruined by these young upstarts. And unfortunately, many of them, when they woke up, they were insane, because they'd gone insane in their sleep. Their circuitry, their uh, brain patterns had been corrupted by what had happened. So where they are now is they've awakened and often led by extremely, what's the right word, eccentric individuals leading their Necron forces to whatever goals they wish. They have many different goals. Some of them want to return to the flesh times. Others, like the Nefrek dynasty, and that's what their little factions are called. They're, they're split into things called dynasties. The Nefrek want to transform into beings of pure light. Others simply want to gain knowledge and mastery over the universe and are fine where they are. And that's, that's basically where the Necrons are now. Previously... The Silent King, who hadn't been seen up until this point, he had left when he sent everyone to sleep. The last thing he did was leave the galaxy. Many think this was in penance and out of a feeling of shame that he exiled himself because of what he had done to his own race and turned them into mindless robots. But he has returned. Why he's returned, we're still not entirely sure at the moment, but he's back and he's got a massive model and his rules take up a full A4 side of paper. So that's a major development in Necron lore moving forward. Uh, and that's where they are at the moment. Sorry, that wasn't as probably as short as you wanted, uh, but I'm just too passionate. I apologize. No, no, no. Never apologize for passion. So that was a great little primer into where we're at now. And the interesting thing here is that you were talking about the biofurnaces. The civilization made their deal with the devil. And they gained the the immortal skeletons but they also as you said lost their souls but when we come back to how all of the different factions and the, the different horror tropes then they all seem to me to be very consistent in that it's about loss of self mm-hmm. 
And when they've initially made that, it's that classic deal with the devil. It's like, be careful of the small print. Yep. Is they said, we want to escape from the cancers which are ravaging us. We, we live these very, very short, blighted lives because of the radiation. And we want to escape from that. And they went, sure, escape from that. But here, your bodies can't die and you can be reanimated. But here are the things which have never been a problem before, mm-hmm. yeah. but which you will discover are worse. And that is a, a very horror thing. It's like, what have we done? Yeah. You know, the scientist who drops to his knees and goes, I was trying to do good. Yeah. And he's the fly, yeah. you know, kind of those type of things. And, and having read a couple of the novels recently, one particular quote from just the beginning of The Infinite and Divine, it's in chapter one, so I don't, I'm not going to drop, say, spoiler tags on this, which is a great book, by the way, Infinite and the Divine. It's really funny, but it's also very cool, very well written, and really consequential. It makes real changes to the characters as they go along, and, and I find that really wonderful, because one of the slight problems with 40k is it can do that soap opera thing of everything returns to the to the status quo at the end nothing really ever changes and i love that development which we're getting now but anyway this quote from the infinite and divine and it's talking about the development of a planet and the dead dinosaur equivalents it says and a few just a few would enter a state of deathless preservation trapped in silt and unable to fully decay the calcium of their bones replaced atom by atom with rock until they were but stone skeletons, immortal in form, yet with nothing of their bodies remaining, a mockery of the vital living creatures they once were. And that's that's the horror in a nutshell, yeah. is that they trap themselves in these bodies, but there are all these other things which are preying on them, and they're trying to escape those, or, but they can't escape by turning back time to their initial great mistake, mm-hmm. which was the the biofurnaces mm. and the deal with the devil. And we've written a few down, just go into them a little bit. And so we've already mentioned the flayer curse. So can you talk about what that is? Yeah. Just before that, we haven't mentioned it on this show, but just as a general concept, I forgot to mention it when I was explaining where the lore is now, and we sh- we've referenced it a few times. The Necrons are losing their personalities when they go from Necron tier, which is the race they were, to the Necrons. So the lowest social strata, the peasants, who are the warriors, come out and they have barely any personality the people who were warriors the immortals have a little bit more personality and as you go up the social strata the nobility as nobility does ensured its own protection above that of the common folk Uh, and they came out many of them with their personalities completely intact however they are degrading over time uh, their personalities they are in a sense dying because once your personality dies and you're just a robot who's follows programming that could be called you are dead functionally you know yeah i mean that that was the point of yeah. that quote i think yeah a mockery of the vital living creatures the flayer curse was as we mentioned before the flayed one god based he imparted this curse onto necrons that curse those who get it it's kind of like an infectious disease that's how i see it and when you're in proximity to flayed ones, it can spread to you, very much as the destroyer personality trait can do as well. The curse of the flayed ones is you are ravenously hungry for meat, for flesh. You no longer need to, and you no longer can process any 
meat or flesh or any kind of food that we would see as food anyway. So when they eat, they gorge themselves on the flesh of the dead and the living. And in a gloriously gruesome image that they like to paint when discussing the flayed ones, because they've got a lot of cavities, they've got ribs and stuff and a big open kind of abdomen, all of the meat just comes tumbling out. So as much as they try to like shove meat into themselves, it just comes tumbling out again. As the curse takes hold, they'd lose their personalities even more so than they would be doing normally and become ravenous monsters. Their bodies deform. They're kind of like maybe werewolves in a way, I suppose. Their bodies are transforming. They develop elongated limbs, distorted faces. They become rangier. Massive claws develop instead of fingers, leaving them unable to operate normal equipment uh, that they would do so in their day-to-day life, but very good for cutting the flesh off people. And they also develop this psychosis where they think that they are still living beings. So along with having to eat like a living being would have to do, a living being should be covered in skin. So noticing that they unfortunately don't fulfill this requirement themselves, they take it upon themselves to problem solve and um, reappropriate the skin from others to clad themselves in. And so they are these horrendous beasts with long claws covered in flesh that they've often tied to themselves or just slapped on and allowed the sun to dry onto them through the stickiness that's inherent to wet meat and become these absolute monsters, consume flesh. And that's the flayer curse. Yeah, and so this, it's that loss of self. Yep. It's almost like an addiction. Totally, it? yeah. It's there in the Twice Dead King, which is the other book I've read recently. Yes. Uh, which is also a fantastic book, actually. I mean, the, the, those two books are two of my favourite 40k books that I've ever read, to be mm-hmm. honest. And in that one, one of the lead characters is a void admiral of, of, you know, was known as the Blade and is this very kind of dynamic character. And when they first discover that he has the the Flayer curse, he's ashamed of it. And he's still got enough of himself to try and hide Mm. it. And the lead character is appalled by it, but also has some compassion for him in that he sees his friend begin to fade away and unlike addiction which you can come back through there's no way back from the flare no no it's funny you mention how it's like addiction and and something you've just made me realize when you say that is i'm an alcoholic and i've you know i've not drunk for like seven years or coming up for seven years but like one of the things that really rings true for me is that in the twice dead king books the people with the flare virus they would hide it they would hide their stockpiles of flesh under their tables and stuff like that. And a common thing that alcoholics might do, such as I did myself, uh, would hide a bottle of, uh, you know, Malibu or something because I was classy like that. Even classier, actually, Aldi knockoff Malibu um, (laughs) round, you know, in, in, say, the storage cupboard, the storage room or something where the wife might not find it. So, yeah, it is a real, real example of what addiction is and how they just descend further and further into it. And many people, like you say, they they can be appalled by it, but they also can feel a lot of sympathy, as they should do. Um, and it's, it's great to see that portrayed within the Twice Dead King book. Yeah, I mean, it's a little sort of subtlety yeah. of that lore and that, that nuance of emotion in that book, which I, I really, really enjoyed. Yeah. 
And you talked about before the people waking up with their personalities degraded. Mm. And I mean, I'm I'm currently studying human biology, and part of what we were doing was about the process of dementia and that sort of thing. Yeah. And it describes the um, again in the Twice Dead King about how the degradation of personality is about cascading minor errors, and that's exactly what happens with our neurons. And so you've got this fear of aging, yeah. sen- senility, and because necrons have that immortal body, that's their end game. There's no glorious escape in battle for a space marine, or there's no there's no way out of that. Mm-hmm. They are soulless in the lore. And so there is this creeping horror that, yeah, you can, you can string it out, but that's your fate in the end. Those yeah. those errors, no matter how perfect or exacting your technology is, that's going to get you in the end. It's a much quieter form of horror writing. Mm-hmm. But that is definitely something which you see in horror, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. That kind of loss of the self. You look at you know, uh, vampire fiction, werewolf fiction especially, you wake up uh, and the idea that you're turning into a beast, turning into something that you don't like anymore. Vampire fiction is also full of it where, like, you have this, you know, a- another personality takes hold of you almost, like you are driven to do things that you might not want to do. That loss of self runs very deep in horror. It manifests and is interpreted in, in very different ways, but the loss of one's self and one's personality is uh, definitely something that's explored in horror across all the mediums. Sure. And so the next one I had written here was about the destroyer cults. We've already referenced them as mm-hmm. a modern interpretation of the faceless killer robots. But yep. again, there's more to it than that. And I wonder if you could yeah. lead us through this. They're like the ultimate space nihilists. They just think all life is horrific. Maybe I'm not using nihilist there, sorry. <laughs> sorry, apologize if I'm butchering it, but they they just think all life is very bad and doesn't deserve to exist. And so as a result, they are on this endless quest. They are driven. It's almost like a, a an ideological virus kind of thing where they feel this ideology and this philosophy so strong that it is a virus and it is a curse. And so they go and eliminate and exterminate all life to the point where they lose themselves in this mindless slaughter. It's also manifested in their bodies. Most Necrons retain a humanoid form. This has been kind of, with ninth edition, they've expanded what Necrons look like. So I don't know how this holds true in ninth edition, but and it's not being counteracted by ninth. They've not gone against it and said that's wrong, so it could well still exist. But previous to that, they held humanoid bodies because Necrontia were humanoid and it was kind of a, an expression of what they once were. It's a way of holding on to the beings that they once were. It's the last vestiges of the flesh times and having a soul and they don't want to get rid of that. So one of the things that Necron society finds repulsive about destroyers is they essentially self-mutilate. They cut off their own legs. They cut off their own arms. They slice bits of their head off. And they would do that to replace them all with tools with which to better kill everything that they possibly can. Some of them choose to do that with ranged firepower, like the Locust Destroyers, who have enormous guns grafted to them, and repulsor platforms instead of legs so they can float around the battlefield, killing things at their own discrimination. There are the Scorpec Destroyers, who have 
extra limbs grafted to them. They have giant blades instead of arms and hands, so they can become like a whirling tornado of blades uh, and just slaughter everything around them. You have the Ophidian destroyers, which replace their bodies with snake-like forms, uh, also replace their hands with blades, so they are able to, like a wraith, tunnel underground, partially out of phase of reality, so they can spring up and kill those who might hide from them. But, but the way it manifests in the mind as well is they're absolutely driven to do it, and once you unleash them, you can't really stop them. It's taken with great gravity to use destroyers, because they'll start killing absolutely anything. They'll probably turn your battle plans on their head if you try to control them. So Yeah, so they are they're an undirected weapon, is that they are yeah. something which you unleash the hounds and yeah. then they do what they're gonna do. Yeah, undirected weapon is right. They are they turn themselves into a living weapon. And like thinking about that in in terms of psychological horror, you've already mentioned about this ideological driven hatred. Mm. But I sort of thought about this as almost like a lot of Necrons are horrified by what they've become and are wanting to get back to the flesh bodies. And so that's not all of the, the dynasties want to, but certainly that's some of the characters. And they're looking for some host bodies and they want to have the flesh bodies and souls again. Yep. And there's a sort of element of these Necrons are so horrified by themselves and what they've become that they lean into it the cognitive dissonance of what they are and what they wanted to be is so that it drives them mad yeah. and it sends them off the edge in this brutal way yeah to me that's where the destroyer cults seem to inhabit it's that almost the abused becoming the abuser kind yeah. of space i think it's giving in to the beast within it's portrayed in vampire characters especially in fiction there's often sets of vampires who are just like give in to your hunger you know, like, embrace the night. It's powerful. We can do whatever we want in this form. I think it is that, that element of it's better to cast off your old life. Just embrace it. Just become the beast. Become what people fear. Give in to your addiction. Give in to your... Um, your rage as Your well, rage, yeah, yeah. In The Twice Dead King, there's this intimation that a lot of the destroyers were the, the people who dragged people to the biofurnaces, right? Yeah, certainly in that dynasty. Yeah, there was, for example, you know, this isn't a spoiler, but there's a character called the Red Warden who was in charge of, like, a lot of other troops. They were originally, like, executioners in Necron society and brutal enforcers of the law. And then when it was time for the biofurnaces, they were the went and rounded up all the people who didn't want to be put in the biofurnaces and went in. It's kind of intimated in uh, Twice Dead King that destroyers already have quite a nasty streak in them. And by going into the biofurnace, uh, that exaggerates that in their bodily form as well. It partially accelerates them being into the living weapons that there was an element of them in their flesh life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, that's loss of self. That's, that's giving into mm-hmm. the anger, allowing that to consume you, which mm. is... There may be some Necrons are restraining themselves and, and then the ones who give in are in the destroyer cults. Um, but there's also a through line in the law, um, certainly with the modern law, is there's these intimations that the the Silent King altered the memories 
of the people he sent to sleep, and that he, in order to kind of assuage his own guilt or pretend that he was more virtuous than he was or more mm-hmm. powerful, and that, and so there's this element of in manipulation of people's minds. And you were talking about what happens when you no longer have thoughts, no longer have memories, you are not yeah. really yourself anymore. Yeah, and that's that seems to be true in a subtler way. Of, of some of the characters. Now, I will put a slight spoiler alert in it now, so if you don't want to know about what happens in The Infinite and Divine, probably in the next couple of minutes might be good ones to skip. But there's a very interesting interaction between the two main characters, where each of them thinks that they were the ones who resisted the, the trips to the Vio Furnaces and realised the Deceiver was deceiving them. But each of them has essentially the same memory. Yeah. That they're hiding in a library and the other one comes to get them. And I think that that kind of the manipulation and that horror of feeling that you've been manipulated by magic, essentially, yeah. is is a really, really strong one as well. And you've got lots of Twilight Zone type episodes where, you know, you have a powerful manipulator of reality mm-hmm. who will change things. And in the iterative process, the characters slowly realise yeah. and then the horror is they don't know what's real. They don't yeah. know what's true anymore. They don't even know their own history. Mm-hmm. Likewise, in The Twice Dead King, you've got the main character who is able to experience as if it were his reality. So really revisiting that past event at the cost of burning it forever. Mm. So he gets to experience it this one time again, and then it's gone. Has these moments where he goes, is it worth burning and cauterizing this little part of myself with the knowledge that he only has so many of these memories to go back in and each time he does it he becomes a little bit less and that's a really terrifying trope and that kind of leads me on to the last one which is the disforact now this is something which is new law um, again in the twice dead king and what that is is when he is away when he's asleep for these trances or whatever and then comes back then what happens is that he wakes up and he doesn't realize that he's in his metal body and so he tries to breathe and then he has this and obviously being the the necrodermis and the the necron figure that he is he can't breathe and that kind of panic attack of rising and mm. the feeling of trapped in being unable to move. Now, for me, as somebody who's kind of claustrophobic, that is genuinely a horrific idea. And yeah. the feeling horror films like Buried and The Vanishing, where you're sort of like waking up in the in the coffin and those sorts of things, that kind of locked in syndrome mm. is just a terrifying and horrific image. And I was I was quite disturbed by reading that. I think the author does a really good job. So that's Nate Crowley in the in the Twisted King does a really good job of communicating that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that yeah, the description of the panic attacks, the locked in syndrome, uh, people who who uh, I forget the the exact the actual term of having waking nightmares where you or well nightmares where you are awake but unable to move. Yeah. And these things are happening to you. And that's a really strong horror trope, which goes back to, I mean, like 
it's a succubus and incubus and there's a lot of religious kind of stuff about these things happening Mm -hmm. and again that's kind of they are doomed by their own actions but that doesn't mean that what's happening to them is okay yeah totally just to add on to that as well i think also like the transformation the what i got out of uh the disfract as well the way they were describing it was it's like suddenly realizing you're a robot <laughs> like <laughs> it's it's like i imagine if you woke up and your arm wasn't there imagine the horror of imagine that shock that horror that panic well they experience that but they wake up and none of them's there like it's all, you know there's nothing their body's not there anymore there's something else there it's been replaced by prosthetics essentially imagine if you woke up and all of your body was replaced by prosthetics and all of your flesh your arm has gone where's your leg gone but i couldn't imagine for example waking up and my arm wasn't there i don't think i'd i don't i have have the cognitive ability to to think about that imagine if none of you was there you know it's just absolutely terrifying the disfer act like and like you say they're not good people but also like who is in the 40k universe and if they're not good does that mean they deserve to suffer horribly there's redeeming el especially to altics who is the lead character in the twice dead king he's known for being a kind necron and that's seen as being a, a a fault a character flaw in his society you know, and he's on a path to valuing, as the stories go along, he's, he's on a path to valuing the lower classes more. And does he deserve that? Do any of them deserve that? Perhaps that's the trauma that's keeping them so horrible to everything else in the galaxy. Well, and there's an element of when you've done something horrific, as they have, then walking back and truly healing from that yeah. is involves a lot of therapy which yeah. when when you look at people who have done horrible things in war you know that leaves psychic scars mm. on you mm-hmm. as well as what you've done to or what you've seen done or what you have actually done to other people yeah and yeah none of that makes you a virtuous person mm-hmm. but it's also a horrific thing to go through and so yeah. kind of like the Having this sympathy for the Necrons and the ordeal of the Necrons was not something that I expected to come out of this episode. I think it was part of the reason the journey which I've gone on, as I've discovered, the Necron Wars has been mm. really lovely. And I, th- I think that those are the majority of the things which we're talking about from a horror angle, and which I had in yeah. my notes. Were there any other things which you wanted to bring in, or any other kind of like few minute rants which you wanted to kind of launch into? Um, I just wish people would like Necrons more. I think they're <laughs> vastly underrated, and I think they're amazing. And everything about them, like you said, you know, the sympathy from them. I think a lot of the sympathy it comes from the fact that it they had the unfortunate luck to be born on a planet with a highly irradiating sun and be made horribly ill. Their entire life as Necrontier was built around preparing for their own funerals. And what a grim existence is that? <laughs> so, you know, they lived in necropolis cities because so many died that the main structure there was a grave. Like, that was the most part... The most things... Most buildings were houses for the dead of their relatives and they spent their lives preparing for their own funerals and deaths. 
And so I think it's relatable to go and go to an a you know a powerful organization and say, Can you help me, please? I understand that you're immortal and we'd be well up for getting healed. And them being like, nah, sorry, mate. And then getting pissed off about it. I think that's fully relatable. And I think everything stems from that bad luck. Everything is a series of horrible tragedies in a way. And they're building on each other. Yeah, exactly. Because they can't go back. No. There's no, there's no ability. And, and none of the characters in this, in, in the books I've read or that, that I've seen, actually have the vision to of coming back from that. Yeah. They're always trying to build on the mistakes of previous generations. Yeah. And again, yeah. that's that's that sort of tragedy in the in the kind of the more Shakespearean sense is yeah. that there's that initial tragedy and that initial flaw mm-hmm. in their characters, yeah. in in what else? There's an inevitable downward step. Despite noble intentions, despite all your good qualities, that's still gonna lead you downhill. It's just snowball effect, isn't it? It's a domino trail of bad decisions. Well or bad events or bad luck that's come from a horrific circumstance of which you are born, which is not yeah. their fault at all. No, no, not at all. Yeah, absolutely right. And the the last section I wanted to talk about is how this knowledge helps you with your actual hobbying and, and how you how you think about how you model, how you play Necrons and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Is that something you lean into? When I did my Warriors, they're all old school, third edition. That is old school now, Warriors. Um, you know, I did like to have them sprayed with blood and stuff like that often and blood dripping around them. Um, the horror was something I, I do love. But I actually, I suppose it's the the 1950s sci-fi stuff I particularly like and melding that together just as games workshop has done with the big walkers and painting things to look a bit like classic sci-fi painting a heat ray to look like what you'd imagine a most obvious heat ray to look like with the scorch marks and things like that painting things the modeling things to be in a you know a very 1950s hokey kind of way but the horror stuff i like as well i particularly like it with the canoptic stuff i've got a reanimator that's dripping along a long strand of blood and gore because i like the fact that canoptic models are kind of like impassive robots they're just devices and they're capable of committing horrific acts and they like puncturing like a human's head and pulling the innards out is no different from fixing a circuit board to them um so i like that kind of impassive horror that doesn't even really notice that they're doing horrendous things with the characters i really find them inspiring about how eccentric you can go with them and how insane they are and while on the one hand i think there is definitely a real sympathetic portrayal and analogy to things like dementia i also think there is also an aspect of insanity in the kind of like pop cultural sense in the same way that the joker is insane things like that and I, I like leaning into that as well. And it gives you a lot of scope to create fiction around your own characters and give them their own personalities. Like I've got one overlord. She's called Helltech. She's got like a lot of names that I can't remember right now, a lot of epithets. And I love in the um, the codex when you're playing Crusade, when you win a game, roll 2d6 
on a table and that generates a new epithet for you. So you just end up with these hilariously long, silly names, which is part of the joy of it. You know, it, it takes stuff like that and makes it silly. It gets so over the top, just like all of 40K, I suppose. Mm. You know, and I've got one who's just covered in the skulls and trophies that she's taken from the people she's slain. So you can give them exactly as much character as you give any Space Marine character. You can make them as distinct as any of the other personalities in 40k, perhaps more so, because they are truly mad. And so that's that's been a huge inspiration to my hobby, the madness of it. And all of those things are things I love, like insane characters like the Joker, hokey science fiction tropes with walkers with heat rays on. I'm a huge War of the Worlds fan, along with straight-up horror aspects, you know? Zombies, yeah. skeletons walking towards you that get back up again the silent encroaching horde with weaponry that will literally disassemble you atom by atom so i think you can do a great deal with it what i also find inspiring in the hobby as well is they've really expanded the scope of what necron characters can be and while i'm very fond of the idea that they consider destroyers to be self-mutilators I also like how much the Cryptechs have gone really crazy with their designs and the Destroyer characters. And that, to me, gives you a lot of scope for kit bashing, um, mm. for making very unusual uh, characters who look really bizarre. Um, and also the insects of the Canoptic stuff. A lot of Canoptic stuff just gels really well with all the other Canoptic units. So you can really make some very strange Canoptic life forms and proxy them as units and they'll still look like proper canoptic units that the necrons right might really have in their reserves and it struck me then as you were talking about the name thing is there is a little bit of a connection to the loss of self there is that yeah part of the that that kind of like give me more names give me more names give me identity there is yeah. a little bit of a reaction i don't want to go too much into that but it's there and it's it's it shows that kind of the thought and the invention is consistent within it it's like they're trying to fill their personality hole with more personality there you go well you know it's what i do with my hobby is, is you know i try and try and paint harlequins and give myself some personality <laughs> there um but with with looking at this i've been really inspired by this idea of the destroyer cults who are unmaking themselves and remaking themselves into instruments mm. of death and so the um the, the new the newish now, I guess, uh, model which has got the six arms. The Hexmark Destroyer. That's not a destroyer, is it? Oh, it's no, a... that's a. Dis the Hexmark Destroyer is a kind of destroyer, yeah. Okay, what an incredible mini mm -hmm. that is. It's, a, it's a basically an animate ant with yeah. pistols. It's brilliant. And when I was looking at the range before, I'd gone, I don't necessarily feel like my urge to convert or, or make things individual would work with this faction because aren't they faceless, yeah. you know, kind of. They don't have personality, but with the destroyer cult, so I have this in my mind, this destroyer cult army, where you are taking the elements and rebuilding them into, and they're quite centerpiece. I mean, the destroyers themselves are big old yep. bases, and you could really go to town with like making them into the sort of the spiders and the the floating bases, and with lots of claws and stuff. So you, you're transforming them from the model into something weirder and nastier. Yep. Um, but still consistent within the, the destroyed yeah. lore. That was that was one idea which I which I was just like, yeah, I want to do that. 
I would really like to see when they do destroy us, even further destroy us stuff. I'd really like to see way more customization options because I think that would be true to the law. Like you say, they alter themselves to fit the best way of killing things. And there is an argument to be made that, well, that's the most efficient form. So they're all, they all want to be the most efficient at doing things. And so they all look like that particular unit. But on the other hand, I think they're mad and they probably all have their own way of wanting to kill things. So I think there's a lot of scope and it would be really nice to see kits with a lot of um, scope for customization and stuff. If you're not such a skilled converter as yourself, you can at least make every destroyer unit look different. You know, can you place the gun differently? Can you play, can you give it a hover platform instead instead of six legs or you know or a snake tail yeah, and things you could like make that a really lovely juxtaposition in the same army between the destroyer cults who are these well or the flayed ones who are these ragged weird looking units smothered yeah. in blood in, in the face has or the um the destroyer units who are festooned in weapons and then you can also have the yep. regimented warriors who are you know disciplined phalanxes and and that can really work. And that, that juxtaposition within the same army, yeah. differentiating between looks within your army, that's a really cool thing to do. It's something I love, basically because I get bored really easily with one uh, with one paint job. <laughs> um, and so I like to be able to just do different stuff on as many models as possible. Yeah. And then... That's a great idea. And the other thing is, like, for 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 motivations and things like that you know often as we were talking about your motivation is humans woke me up i'm gonna flay them and get yeah. rid of the purge but when you're actually getting a crusade game where you you're in a crusade campaign and you're writing about the ongoing narrative maybe your chronomancer is looking is going off on a task or you've got somebody who's looking for a cure for the flayer and that can be your motivations yeah. and things like that. And I think those sure. games workshop with the newer law, being able to have all of these different reasons, not just as these faceless mm -hmm. killer robots, is really inspiring. Just to give you an example, I'm playing a crusade game with my Necrons right now. It's If Vangs, my friend, is listening to this, he's created the 40k campaign that I would have dreamed of being a part of, you know, never mind as a child right now. So thank you for writing an amazing campaign. But my thing is, I've got Helltech. She's an insane overlord. And yes, she is a, her name is literally Helltech. And she is massively destructive and crazy. And my old overlord, Munuk the Unyielding, is basically coming to go and get her to sort her and her forces out because he believes that she is going to arouse or get noticed by the Silent King, who's recently entered into the galaxy. And he doesn't want their dynasty, my Temek dynasty, to be subsumed and become a vassal dynasty of the Silent King. So he's going over there to sort her out, to quite calm her down, because their dynasty doesn't particularly believe this, this is the real Silent King. They call him, you know, the so-called king and the great imposter and stuff like that. So that's not just like, get off my lawn. That's motivated by the return of a character in the modern law and how does that play out between personalities and what danger could that spell for themselves from their own forces. This is protecting themselves from some powerful element within the Necron species. So there's so much you can do with crusade motivations for your Necrons. Like, 
they have as many motivations as any human faction would probably more because they don't necessarily feel a lot of them aren't necessarily fighting for their survival or like even trying to take over the galaxy very fast they're about recovering what was once there they're about securing their own borders first sure. yeah absolutely and i think that's probably covered the ground we planned Rob, this has been wonderful. I've enjoyed it so much. It's great chatting to you. And I, I just love hearing passionate people chat about stuff uh, interestingly. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, it's, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I'm a fan of your podcast already. I was, I heard one before it went out. Very kindly, thank you. And I knew that this was going to be a special program and a very valid and valuable contribution to 40k podcasting <laughs> there's a lot of podcasts out there and i ain't ever heard one like this and this is a really valuable addition to the 40k podcasting canon and yeah it's wonderful just to talk to you and you know i don't want to sound patronizing like i'm some necron daddy but it's like talking to you on the run-up to this and seeing you get more and more excited about necrons and loving them and me f- feeling that excitement with you and going, you know, it's it's allowed me to relive my excitement when I got into them and I realized how much more cooler than than I originally thought they were. So it's been lovely as well to kind of like chat Necrons with you and stuff. And this feels like a wonderful kind of finale of that. Well, not a finale, but a great, you know, point where we've reached to. Definitely. So I, I've really loved this. Thank you. I'm so pleased that you've enjoyed it because I mean, there is a huge pleasure in, in introducing somebody to something that you love and mm-hmm. watching them experience it for the first time. Um, mm. I've always been quite a big festival goer. I used to go to Glastonbury almost every year. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of occasions when I took um, either girlfriends or friends took boyfriends or girlfriends for the first time. Yeah. And you'd be like, you'd be like, Yes, come on! You get to experience the magic now, <laughs> yeah. and it is, and it makes it new. It does make it new. So, before we sign off, where can people get in touch with you, Rob, for those book codes for the um, H.L. Tinsley book you were talking about at the beginning? We men of ash and shadow. If you want to get in touch with me, it is on Twitter at RJ Bailey, R J B A Y L E Y. I do spell my name slightly differently. Or I do have a Facebook page professionally, which is RJ Bailey, voice artist and sound designer. You'll find me if you type that in. It's facebook.com forward slash RJ Bailey. And I've also got my website as well, rjbailey.com, where there's a contact form. But it's probably easiest if you just just tweet me, if possible, or get me on my Facebook page. Sure. And if um, if you do want to get t- in touch with Rob, um, you can get in touch through me. I am 40 Curious. That's 40 Curious with a K. I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram and I am on Facebook. And of those, there's also 40 Curious at gmail.com. So um, if you do want to get in touch, if you've got any thoughts about what we discussed today, or you've got any ideas about future episodes, because really... I am just, you know, the idiot who hosts and the guests are the value here. So if you can get in touch with ideas, I've already had a couple of people get in touch even after episode one. And I'm really excited by a couple of the ideas they've had because uh, they're not, not ideas I would have ever had. And that's that's the dream. I've said it before and I'll say it again is I love 
hearing passionate people talk about things they are interested in through the shared prism of something we're both interested in, so in this case, 40k. So, yeah, on that note, um, we will sign off and um, speak to you again soon.